God? I thought you were just. How could this have happened? I didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? I thought God was supposed to reward good people and punish bad people. God, if you're good, why am I suffering like this? So we're in Job 38 through, really, we're going we're gonna to look at through chapter 42 and verse 6, but verses 1 through 6 of chapter 42 are really an overlap, so we'll really be looking more at them, but we definitely need to hit them this morning. We've got a full meal deal uh, in these chapters. It's been a lot, of, a lot of study and thinking through because we're going to hit on some things here that uh, we want to understand them as best as we can, and I hope that I've done my job, and I want to just present to you some of the things I've arrived at with it as we look at this whole area when God shows up, which is what happens this morning with Job. So if you would go to chapter 38, I want to read 1 through 3 and 38, and then I want to read chapter 40, 1 through 8 to begin. These are really, these are the climactic chapters because we're going to look at trusting God's wisdom this morning in these chapters. Next week, I'm really looking forward to just a simple sort of summary on all that we've looked at, and we're going to talk about thanking God when God restores our lives, just the thankfulness that's needed. We'll hear a little bit of that this morning. So in Job 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then chapter 40, verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word, and I ask, Lord, now the things I prepared, you break them fresh for us. Lord, we're hungry. We know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, you said that we build our houses on that rock when we hear and then obey the things that we've heard. So, Lord, we're open. We pray by your Holy Spirit you would teach and instruct us. We also, Lord, who know you and love you this morning, are praying for anyone here that does not yet know you, that you'd be moving in their hearts through your word. You want to speak to them just like you do want to speak to us this morning as believers. So, Lord, we pray for them. We ask by your mercy, your grace, your love, there would be some things in their hearts and minds that they're mulling over and that they would come to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So, Lord, bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we looked at all through it, The book of Job is an invitation to trust God's wisdom. That might be in suffering. It might be in all the complexities of life. The book of Job points us to to Jesus, as does the whole Bible. So Jesus is divine perspective. You want to know how God sees things? We need to look to Jesus. He is God. Jesus is human perspective. You want to know what the human life is supposed to look like? Jesus is our perspective on that. Jesus is God exalted, and Jesus is God revealed. Now, tonight, in our study today... God's going to reveal himself to Job. God revealed himself finally to us through his son. Are you not thankful for that? 
So it's an invitation to trust Jesus in all the complexities of life. So the book of Job is filled with question marks. I counted 309 of them. So there are a lot of questions, and certainly life is filled with question marks. In the book of Job, we're not necessarily getting answers as we might like them, but we're getting God, and we love him. And so a nagging difficulty when it comes to suffering and complexities is that finite human beings cannot give a meaningful analysis of what's going on simply because God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are our ways his ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 58, verses 8 and 9. So question marks all over the place. But then this word answer shows up about 70 times in the book of Job. But really the only five words where it says answer, the only five that really matter are what we're getting in our study this morning. That's when the Lord answers Job and Job answers the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So here's how it goes. The Lord answered Job. That's the 73 verses with the Lord's answering Job. Then Job answers the Lord in three verses. Then the Lord answers Job in 52 verses. <laughs> and then Job answers the Lord in six verses. And that's the way it should be. God should have most of the airtime. Can you hear an amen? And we're responding to him. And often the responses God's looking for are not complicated. He's not looking for big explanations. He's simply looking for us to humble ourselves before him and receive the things that he has for us to trust his wisdom. So it's a monologue, but really becomes a dialogue here as far as God's monologue. Trusting God's wisdom. It's the climactic chapters of the things we've been studying. So when God shows up, he himself is the answer. As he said to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. The psalmist said in chapter 28, verse 6, Blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. So the psalmist is saying, blessed be the Lord, because he's heard the voice of my supplications. But the question, I want to hit this a little bit this morning, is this. What about when God is silent? What about when it seems like God's not showing up? And the book of Job certainly surfaces that whole frustration. So I wanted to share with you something from a book I'm reading, but it's, it's, it's called Divine Hiddenness, or as they say, Epistemic Distance, or Knowledge Distance, from a book by Clay Jones called Why Does God Allow Evil? In chapter 6, which is called Is Free Will Worth It?, he writes this, quote, If God wants us to be significantly free, know the kind of freedom we now possess, then God can't make his presence too apparent. He can't make his presence too saturated. His presence in the world is not smothering like an overbearing parent. He is not an ever-present helicopter God. Philosophers call this epistemic distance or divine hiddenness. He goes on, This is so because if God's existence were at every moment absolutely unmistakable, then many people would abstain from desires they might otherwise indulge. In other words, if Christianity were unmistakably true, C.S. Lewis says, if it was like a multiplication table, then people would have less free will and they would be compelled to feign loyalty or fake loyalty to God. So he gives an example. I've asked guys, he says, if you were getting 
up to speak at a podium, and there are there are cameras on you, an audience watching you, and if there were a pornographic magazine on the podium, would you open it or even look down on the cover? Of course, the answer is always no. Why? Because they know that everyone's watching them. He goes on to say this, quote, similarly, God could make his presence and his power so evident that everyone would always do the right thing, whether they wanted to or not, but that would interfere with our acting freely, unquote. So another example he gives, which I can relate to, I have a 15 and a half year old daughter, and I, as a dad, I'm very protective. I want to be helping her make good choices. He says, if you were to chaperone your daughter everywhere she went, would she be able to exercise her free will to go where she was forbidden, drink what she shouldn't, cross sexual boundaries, stay out past her curfew, and so on and so on. See, those things can only happen if she doesn't perceive your immediate presence. Stay with me. Quote, he goes on. As theologian John Hick put it, this kind of distance between God and man that would make room for a degree of human autonomy is epistemic distance, unquote. So he goes on. God could have, after all, designed the universe so that when we looked up, even if we were indoors, <laughs> we would always see a giant flaming sword. And if anyone rebelled against God, that giant flaming sword immediately cut him in half. Omnipotence could easily do such a thing, but how many people would be Christian in such a world? Isn't the answer all of them? Everyone would, at the very least, feign loyalty or fake loyalty to God. But how many true worshipers would you get in such a world? You see, worship must be uncoerced, unquote. So I want you, I give that to you just to chew on a minute for a while when you leave. But Psalm 78 says this, when he, God slew them, they sought him and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. Outward looks good, but not in their hearts. It's feigned loyalty. It's fake worship. Isaiah 45, 15 says this, truly you are God who hides himself. So there we have it. And you can think more on that, but that certainly comes up. And so it's an interesting idea, an interesting concept for us to realize that God isn't seem, doesn't seem like that. Doesn't seem like, and in his infinite wisdom, we're trying to figure that out, that wisdom out. So the Lord answered Job. Let's begin verse 38. He answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, Job had been pleading with God to give him an audience. Now he's got it. It's not exactly what he thought. Because God is going to be contending with him now. God's going to be rebuking him. God's going to be calling him to task. Who is this who darkens counsel? Now, I picture the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit looking down saying, who is this who darkens counsel in the presence of God? Now, he's talking to Job. That's who it is. So question one is, who is this who darkens counsel? What he's saying is, Job, you are clouding and confusing things in all your chatter. You're saying things as though you have known a thing or two. But Job, you don't. <laughs> You're saying, I'm saying to you, Job, I want to get you back where you belong. Where you trust me because you know that you are in good hands. That's what he's saying. I want to do that. And he's going to do that for Job. David McKenna, in his commentary on Job, said this, quote, 
In seeking to understand these things, Job is actually casting a dark shadow between his mind and God's mind. Job is learning that the issue is not ethical. God is perfect in all his ways. The question is not why, and the need is not understanding. The issue is spiritual. The question is who, and the need is trust, unquote. So as with Job, so with you and me, when we suffer, it provokes the same old question. Why do good things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or to bring it more to the heart, why is this bad thing, this unwanted thing, happening to me? That's what goes on. So is God just? Does God govern with strict justice? Is there any rule by which goodness is rewarded and wickedness punished? Is good always rewarded? Is evil always punished? And if not, then when are they? Those are the questions that come up as we walk through the book of Job. Suffering is universal. We all suffer. But suffering is also unique. We suffer in many different ways for many different reasons. God allows suffering for his own good reasons and for his own good purposes. And though we may never, he, he may never explain to us why, the fact is they are both good because God is good in his reasons and purposes. We try to answer the unanswerable whys. When we do that, we do one of two things. We either simplify God, we reduce God to our humanly limited and finite assessments and conclusions. That's what happens. We either do that or we accuse God of being the problem. We accuse God of being wrong. And like Job, we begin demanding that God give us an answer as though he owed it to us. God doesn't give us the answer because we can't understand it as far as the, what he's doing. And that's why we, he might, he's seeking to bring us to that place where we realize he's God, I'm not. And the need is trust. The who is God himself. So when life goes bad and there is no answer, at first we take it patiently. But as it continues on, just like Job, we begin to get impatient with God. And when we do, very subtly, our pride begins to twist our hearts against God. And so, we begin to contend with God. We begin to try and correct God. I smile saying that. We begin to charge God, even condemn God in our hearts. So now Job is told by God, verse 3, prepare yourself like a man. In other words, Job, stand up. Straighten up. You're a human being, and I want to talk to you, God to human. I will question you, and you shall answer me. An ill-prepared college student taking an economics exam just before Christmas vacation wrote on his paper, only God knows the answers to these questions. Merry Christmas. The professor graded the paper with these words, wrote these words, God gets a hundred, 
you get zero, happy new year. <laughs> and I think that's what God says. <laughs> who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? So where were you, verse 4, chapter 30, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. More questions. Who, who, who? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There was this chorus of worship as God's creating all these things. Or who shut in the seas with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling bed. So it's like birthing the earth and the swaddling of the heavens around it. It's this picture of a birth of the creation, the world, the earth and heavens. He said, when I, first, when I fixed my limits for it and set bars and doors. When I said, verse 11, this far you may come but no farther. Aren't you thankful for that as far as the oceans? <laughs> and here your proud waves must stop. So, number one, God created the universe. Now, as we get into these next, the rest of chapter 38 and 39, many more questions. Have you, can you, will you, would you? Who has, who can? I'm going to summarize it by these two things. God, yes, created the universe, but secondly, God controls the forces in his universe. And third, God cares for the creatures in his universe. That includes you and me. We are actually the pinnacle of all of God's creation because we were created in his image. So God created the universe. God controls the forces in his universe. And God cares for the creatures in his universe. That's what you get in all of these things that he's talking about. So what I had to do was I had to intentionally leave out most of the 73 verses because they're so packed. I know I'd want to go through them and talk about them. We don't have the time this morning, but here's what I hope. I hope you'll read them because here's what, he, here's what God does, given this sort of this, this uh, um, tour of the heavens, virtual tour of, of the earth. And really, as you look at it, it's not necessarily the whole universe, but it's earth, standing on earth, and what we can see as God's created beings. So it's the earth, as you'll see, and the heavens mentioned uh, numerous times those words. So here's what from Rob... Roy Zuck's commentary on Job says this, God's science quiz included questions on cosmology, oceanography, meteorology, astronomy, and zoology. Items like in the physical world related to the earth, the oceans, the dawn, the depths of the sea, of the ocean, and Sheol, the width of the earth, light and darkness, atmospheric elements, including snow and hail, light and wind, rain, dew, ice, and frost, stars, and clouds, and lightning. The list also includes beasts and birds, all undomesticated except the horse. So you have there the raven, the mountain goat, the deer, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, uh, horse, hawk, and eagle. So he goes through this whole virtual tour of his creation with Job. All this saying God created the universe, God controls the forces in the universe, and God cares for the creatures in his universe. And as he takes Job, and if you read that and you go through it, we, these three things should cause anyone to stand in absolute awe of who God is. To stand before him and realize he is so far beyond anything that we could, we could even begin to comprehend. He is God and I am not.
God is perfect in wisdom and understanding. He runs his universe with infinite precision. He accomplishes his eternal purposes, which we've looked at. Why? For his glory and for our good. He's a good God. Deuteronomy puts it this way, 32 verse 3. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. To which God's people said, amen. He is God. The Lord continues answering Job. A rebuke question, chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let, let him answer it. Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Again, it's kind of a smile in some sense. He's saying, Job, are you going to correct me? Are you going to contend with me in that way? Then Job answered the Lord, chapter 40, verse 3. And said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Remember, Job's, hey, I want to, God, you need to talk to me. And now God's talking and saying, oh, okay, this is a little different than what I thought. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Listen, Job's beginning to get it. And we have those same moments when we all of a sudden we begin to get it. Our hearts begin to be open. He is confessing that he had indeed darkened counsel by words without knowledge. Exactly what he did. So God's not going to let up yet. And so in, the Lord now answers Job in two very revealing questions. Verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now prepare yourself like a man. Okay, Job, you're slouching a bit. Sit up. <laughs> I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Very revealing, very rebuking questions. Would you annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you might be justified? Notice in verse um, 9. Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. So have you and can you are the questions. Here's the deal. To contend with God is to suggest that in some way I'm equal to God. In strength, in the ability to humble the proud or in wielding authority. That somehow I'm equal if I'm contending with him. To correct God is to suggest that I know better than him. Now, I've corrected God, I thought, on many occasions. <laughs> but to correct him is to suggest that I know better than God. And to condemn God is to suggest that God is accountable to me. None of those things are true, nor do I want them to be true. 
He says, then adorn yourself, then I will confess to you. So God's challenging Job to rise to the occasion and let's switch places. And you be God for a while and see how you do. Which brings us to these two beasts by which God illustrates his wisdom. His wisdom in the cosmic matters infinitely beyond my capacity or Job's to comprehend. Much less deal with. This wisdom is also displayed, his communicating through these two beasts, by which, through this, what God's doing, that Job would trust him, and the same for us. So I believe the behemoth in chapter 40 and the Leviathan in, or Leviathan in, verse, in chapter 41, I believe these illustrate that in the perfect goodness of God's creation, God in his infinite wisdom allowed for evil to infiltrate his good creation and by it fulfill his perfect will and purpose for his creation, which again, understand, the pinnacle, the focus of God's creation is those who have been made in his image, which is you and me. So God, evil infiltrated the creation, the good creation. So here's what I've arrived at. The potential for evil, for bad, was necessary. And the presence of evil, that means all that which is not good, is not a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. Rather, evil has a place in the outworking, I don't know why I'm crying, (laughs) of the outworking of the manifold wisdom of the eternal God. Can you comprehend that? I just said, wow. There's potential for evil, the presence of evil, the place of evil. Can we comprehend that? We can't comprehend it, much less control it, much less conquer it. So the Bible project puts it this way. God's world is good, but not perfect. God's world is ordered, but wild. God's world is beautiful, but dangerous. Potential, then we have the presence, and then we realize there's a place that God understands where it's placed in his divine purposes to bring glory to his son and to redeem us from our sins. So the behemoth and Leviathan are two symbols of disorder and danger. However, I would suggest they symbolize that there's, there's more than just these things that they're symbolizing. I just read why. So God is challenging Job. If you think you know better how to create for good, maintain order, deal with evil, bring about justice, and make all things good again, then let's start with this. You create, you understand, you control, and then you conquer the beast, and then we'll talk. Not only did Job have nothing to do with the good of God's creation, he was a part of it, Neither could Job understand the place and the purpose of evil in God's good creation. And Job was powerless to control and ultimately conquer evil for good. God did, God does, and God will. Can I hear an amen? Evil will be taken care of 
by God. And so he begins with the behemoth. Look now, that's what he says, look now and see now. The behemoth, verse, chapter 40, verse 15, which I made along with you. So God created the behemoth. Secondly, God controls the behemoth. You'll get this in, in this, we're not going to read it, but he controls the behemoth. And not only that, he cares for the behemoth. So the picture here in the behemoth is God's good creation. He created the behemoth, he controls the behemoth, and he cares for the behemoth. So this beast, I believe, is an animal that Job actually knew about, that existed. Some suggest it's the hippopotamus. Now, I appreciate Jeff sent me a little thing this morning on why, that, why that's probably not true, and I appreciate that, Jeff, very much. So what, I've read a lot on it, and there's different opinions on that, but the hippopotamus was a, the largest animal known in the ancient Near East. An adult hippo today weighs 8,000 pounds. It's not something you'd want sitting on you. <laughs> now, some believe that at that time, there was a variety of the hippotamus that was larger than that, outsizing even the elephant. So you can research that for yourself if you'd like. Now, others would describe it as a now extinct species that existed at Job's time. Now, the second beast we get is in chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan, verse 1, with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet? In other words, are you going to kill him and then sell him on the market for food? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Let your hand, lay your hand on him, remember the battle, and never do it again. So Leviathan, this, this word comes up six times in the Bible. In chapter 3 of the book of Job, Job said this. Remember, he's, all this evil, bad stuff has happened. In chapter 3, opens up. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, may the day perish on which I was born. See, words, I was never born. Then he says this, verse 8. May those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. In Psalm 74, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpent in the water. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Now, that could be interpreted two ways. It could be it's, it's, it's this... Uh, this idea of a, of a principle, a symbol, or it's an actual thing. In Isaiah 27, 1, In that day the Lord will sever will, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptiles in the sea. Now, it's in the context of God's judgment. So there seems... These seem to refer to Leviathan, a seven-headed sea monster of ancient Near Eastern mythology. In Ugartic literature, Leviathan was an enemy of, or, of the order in creation. And when aroused, he would cause an eclipse by swallowing the sun and moon. So, a symbol of evil. Now, that is agreed that Leviathan is a symbol of evil. Depends on how you want to look at the actual, if it's an actual or mythological creature. Now, in Psalm 104, verse 24, it says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. 
There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. So an actual creature, I believe that. Now some suggest it's a giant crocodile. Now have you ever seen these things that you come out with this crocodile and nail somebody? <laughs> so some believe it's the, that Leviathan is a, one of the giant crocodiles of the Jordan River. It, now it's description about its back, its teeth, its chest and undersides, its churning of the waters could describe a crocodile. I'll leave that to you to decide. But that's not what's important here. What's important is understanding what's God trying to communicate to Job. Now, there are others that say it's now a dis an extinct dinosaur or even a dragon. But almost unanimously agreed is this. They symbolize the power of evil. So repeatedly mentioned is man's fear of Leviathan. Let's look at that a moment. Chapter nine, uh, 42, 1, verse 9. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at, it, at the sight of him? Very afraid. No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then, notice God's plan, who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? We owe God. We're in debt to him. Everything under heaven, God said, is mine. Accountable to me. Look at Job 41, verse 25. When he raises himself up, a Leviathan. The mighty are afraid because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. Look at chapter 41, verse 33 and 4. On the earth there is nothing like him, which is made without fear, fearless. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. So nothing equals this creature. He's afraid of nothing, and everyone is terrified of him. Even a haughty man crouches in fear of Leviathan. Pride. This unconquerable animal is therefore king over all the children of pride. So I think we could ask the same question. Job, can you contend with Leviathan? Can you condemn Leviathan to death? Then why are you doing that? Why do you think that's, that's how it should be between you and I? And no, he, he didn't even, would even dare to try in the human realm of creation. So the challenge, any relationship Job may attempt to have with Leviathan will be doomed to failure, whether by treaty or by force, far too powerful for him to handle. When we think of evil, that's exactly the description that we would have to give to our own hearts. The unconquerable animal is, therefore, is a picture of power even over man's pride. So I find something interesting in God's dialogue with Job. Look at chapter 38 again, if you turn back there. 38 verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, creation of the earth? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, the birthing of the earth. Notice, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors. When I said, this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. Let me tell you the picture in here about pride. Pride will not acknowledge God's set limits. God, pride does not do that. Pride wants nothing to do with God's set boundaries. 
Pride never responds affirmatively when God says, you must stop. That's the pride of man. Now look at chapter 39 and verse 13. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. So this bizarre bird that God made, 300 pounds, seven to eight feet tall, has two, the only bird that has two toes, all the rest have either three or four. It's sort of this bizarre bird. The ostrich is the proverbial picture of stupidity. She puts her head in the sand. She's thinking... Things are all, I'll be perfectly safe because I can't see them. And it says that God deprived her of wisdom. The ostrich, in in wisdom, though, is superior in speed. That's verse 18. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. In other words, the ostrich is so created by God, it can run 40 miles an hour. It can outrun a horse. And so God chose to make this seemingly ridiculous bird. Why? I have no idea. And neither do you. It's the same thing. Why did God invent fleas? Or spiders? Or not create them, not invent them. Create, well, he invented them and created them too, yeah. Why would God deprive her of wisdom? I don't know. No idea. But maybe one of the reasons is to give us a picture of pride. You see, the ostrich waves her wings proudly, but she can't fly. That's pride. We can wave the wings, but they're absolutely useless. In fact, uh, Charlotte's sister, Doris, who is here with us for a couple of days, she's from Cyprus, and she pulled up this ostrich that she was, um, at one point, is close to where she lives. She said the ostrich was will get really mad at most, but she had this friend that came, and the ostrich, um, some reason, liked this woman, and so he went around just flapping his wings and showing off. <laughs> Is that not pride? Pride runs with a superior attitude, though it isn't superior. It scorns and disdains, mocks and ridicules. That's what pride does. Pride, really, is stupid. That's what pride is. Now, the third one I'd like you to look at is in chapter 40, beginning in verse 9. We, just, we looked at this, I think, a little bit. He says, disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their face in hiddenness. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. You see, these are the proud ways of man. Pride is the continual heart condition of sinful man apart from God. Pride will not see its own heart condition before God. 
Only God, who knows the heart, can humble the proud, bring low the wicked, in hopes that they would call upon him and be saved. Pride, my brothers and sisters, is the problem. In answering the invitation to trust God's wisdom, pride is what gets in the way. Not only is there complexity of the, there's the, is there the complexity of the good created order, there is the complexity of the chaos that evil brought into the good created order. This drama began in heaven with Satan before God's throne. And God gave Satan permission to inflict evil on Job. Why? We don't know and we aren't told except this. In God's wisdom, it was the good thing that needed to happen. It was Satan who tempted Eve in the garden, appealing to her pride. And through that, sin against God with Adam, and thereby sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus all sinned. We're all sinners by nature. That is a problem. What seemed like a colossal failure was not. God didn't fold everything up and say, I'm done. However, as history of, the, of mankind has unfolded, it's not getting better. The world is rampant with evil. Pride, from which all evil flows. Pride is the, def, is the, the deification of self, Oswald Sanders wrote. The deification of self. It's the central problem. So evil, pride, injustice, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Galatians chapter 5. It's just a beginning definition, explanation. You see, in God's good creation was the potential for evil, according to his wisdom. Into God's good creation came the presence of evil, according to his manifold wisdom. And with the presence of evil came the pride of man. But in spite of the evil and the evil pride of man's heart came the outworking of the manifold wisdom of the eternal, loving, gracious God. For his glory and for our good. Can you appreciate that? On the cross, the worst evil the world's ever seen and ultimately, all evil that has happened was conquered by the justice and wisdom of our Heavenly Father sacrificing His Son in our place that He might once for all destroy it for His glory and for our good. It all comes back 
to Jesus. He is divine perspective. He is the earthly perspective. He is God exalted. He is God revealed. He is the wisdom of God. When we look to the cross, my brothers and sisters, God himself is the answer. He gave himself for you and for me. And so the book of Job is an invitation to trust God's wisdom in your suffering and all the complexities. How do we answer the invitation? It's by answering the questions that God asked Job. Who, who is this who, who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Is it you? Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Is that you? Would you indeed annul my judgment? Is that you? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Is that you? Who then is able to stand against me? I'll tell you, it's been me many times, these answering these yes and the affirmative. But then Job answered the Lord as we need to answer him ourselves. I know that you can do everything, chapter 42, and there no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think Job might have been weeping at this point. He's come to understand God just a little bit deeper. Every time we look to the cross as God is our answer, we begin to know God just a little bit deeper. Who he is. He says, I repent, God. God's God, I'm not. I repent, God knows what I cannot. I repent because God is more than I ever would have imagined he is. And I have just begun to see some things. So how are we to respond to this? Some simple things. God created the universe way before you were ever there. He created you as part of his good universe. He is everywhere present at the same time. He can go nowhere. So when God shows up, listen, here's the first one. God always is before you. <laughs> Can you hear an amen? He always is before you. He's eternal. And so trust God's wisdom. He is your God. Trust him by praising him. And I thought back to God creating the universe and what happened. All the angels, there's this chorus of angels just rejoicing. I would say begin here, praise him. Praise him. God always is before you. He goes before you. He knows everything about you. He is your God. Praise him. And we're told in the Bible to give the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, next week, we're going to look at thanksgiving. But we need to intentionally say, God, I'm going to worship you. That's trusting God's wisdom. 
God controls the forces. God cares for the creatures. Listen, secondly, how to respond. God always is for you. He is good. So I say to him, obey him and thank him. Obey him and thank him. That's trusting God's wisdom. That's believing God knows better than I do. God has everything in mind for my benefit, for my good. So trust God's wisdom by releasing control and obeying him. Trust God's wisdom by receiving his care. How? By thanking him. Yesterday in our prayer meeting, we had a tremendous little few, well, so I love our prayer meetings, hour of prayer from 8 to 9 on Saturday. Again, I want to just encourage you to come. But yesterday as we're praying, we're reading, praying, someone prayed about being thankful. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit, just kind of took us down a little 15-minute segment of the prayer meeting to begin thanking him and acknowledging that, you know, someone said that the, the hardest arithmetic is to count your blessings. We can tend to count the bad. Hey, obey, trust his wisdom by thanking him. We're to offer the sacrifice of praise. That is a fruit of us giving thanks to his name. Just thank him, but notice, obey him. We may not understand it and know why, but that doesn't change anything about who God is and his wisdom. And when God says something, it's right. It's fruitful. It's the best. So don't think I know better. I'm going to correct God on this one. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Let God correct you. How? Through obedience. God always is for you. He is good. The final one is this. God always is with you. Now, I, I thought maybe it would be better God always is around you because he is your guardian. Love him. Love him. How do I love him? When I realize that without him, I am nothing. When I realize that without him, I am separated from the one who can save me. When I realize that without him, I lead an empty, meaningless life. And so when I'm walking around apart from him in my sin... I need to trust God's wisdom by repenting of sin quickly. Repent. It's the door to relationship with God. It also is the door in relationship to one another. In in repairing and reconciling, there needs to be repentance. Job said, I repent, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Listen, trust God's wisdom by repenting quickly of any sin. But then secondly, trust God's wisdom by rejecting all compromise with sin. All of it. In other words, love him. Love him. Don't leave your first love. Don't let other things begin to draw you away in your heart from loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love him. Guard the time you take to read your Bible. That way you know his mind and you know his heart. Guard the time you take to pray so that you know his heart and he knows yours. Guard the priority to stay in fellowship with God's people. Super important. Guard your commitments, whether it's to your marriage, your children, serving in the church, whatever. You guard your commitments as God will help you and enable you to fulfill them. Let's pray.
Father, thank you again for this passage. It's been so rich. And Lord, again, the book of Job is an invitation to trust your wisdom. And so, Lord, we say right now, we, we, we are sitting together as, as frail, mortal people. We need you, God. We need you. And so we trust you, Lord, right now. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We declare your name, great and mighty and awesome. And God, as we bow our hearts before you, we remember again the sacrifice made for us that you might restore us to yourself, reconcile us to yourself, wash away all our sin, and give us eternal life. So as, we're, as you're just praying, my fellow brothers and sisters, would you just continue? And I want to make sure if there's anyone here today that does not know God through Jesus Christ, and that's through Jesus the only way you can. You've never made that confession and saying, I want to say yes to Jesus that I might know forgiveness of my sin, that I might know God. And God made and provided for your sin in his son. And so I'm going to ask you, if, if that's you today, you really want to get right with God, and you know you're not, and God is not going to leave you in the dark. About it. He, you're going to know. There's going to be things going on, and you're just not right with God, and there's, an, there's sort of an anxiety even that's been building in your heart. And you just need to know that you've gotten right with God. I'm going to ask you, first of all, just raise up your hand and keep that up. I want to, I want to see that. If that's you this morning, yes, I want to say yes to Jesus this morning. And we're praying. It's the most important decision any of us have made or anyone will ever make. It's the decision between death and life, between hell and heaven. And God wants no part of you being wondering. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. So that you just raise up your hand. I don't want to miss it, so watch it. So let's stand together and worship with a final song and then I'll come up and we'll pray to close.